All right. So it's one minute after, uh, and uh, we'll start in just a moment. Um, so let's see. And a big welcome to our live audience for coming to this episode of Digital Health Investor Talk. Today's topic is the future of medicine is exponential, how major system shocks are disrupting medicine, creating winners and losers. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, and strategic alternatives. Our guest today is Daniel Kraft, a physician scientist and the chairman of uh, NextMed Health Conference, which is in San Diego coming up March 13th to 16th. Their website is www.nextmed.health. Who uses the www anymore? Come on, this is 2023. <laughs> All right. Um, our audience is entitled to a registration discount of $750 using the code Wardell-750. That's Wardell-750. Daniel is also the founder of Exponential Medicine. Follow him at twitter.com slash Daniel underscore craft. This show is being recorded as a podcast. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. Uh, the format of the call is that we'll be talking for about 30 minutes. After that, we'll take some call-ins from our audience. In order to do more than just listen, you need to register an account with call-in. To register, you can access call-in at callin.com or through the call-in social podcasting app in your app store. The call-in platform works similarly to Clubhouse Rooms and Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. Spaces for a modern social audio experience. Once you've registered, you can press the website's call-in button or use the text chat to indicate that you'd like to speak or join the discussion. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, uh, you, you can you can hear me through the interwebs. That's great. Can you hear me so, okay? Uh, yes. There, there's a little bit of video problem, but uh, but we can hear you. Um, so you're producing a new conference, Next Med Health, coming up in San Diego, March 13th to 16th. Can you tell us about this conference? Well, uh, um, so you're producing a new conference. Next Med Health coming up in San Diego, March 13th to 16th. Can you tell us about this conference? Well, um, I've sort of become an accidental futurist and accidental conference organizer. Um, since 2008, I've been the chair of medicine for something called Singularity University. And um, the idea there was to learn about exponential technologies and how they can. Um, I've sort of become an accidental futurist and accidental conference organizer. Um, since 2008, I've been the chair of medicine for something called Singularity University. And um, the idea there was to learn about exponential technologies and how they can be used to address grand challenges around the world, including in healthcare. Um, and from that, I built a program called Exponential Medicine, bringing people from all sorts of fields together to look at roughly exponential technology trends and how we might reshape the future of health and medicine. So we've done that for 10 years, uh, for seven of those years at the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego. We had this little pandemic you might have heard about, so we put a little pause on getting together in person and thought post-pandemic and this new sort of somewhat catalyzed, COVID-catalyzed health age, we'd reboot and rebrand exponential medicine as Next Med Health. So the same themes, unsiloing healthcare technology, we've, we have a good mix of clinicians, pharma, payers, investors, technologists, startups. It's not your usual medical conference that's siloed around an, like oncology, I'm an oncologist, or around digital health or devices. It's a kind of co co convergence of that. So it's uh, always brought together a pretty amazing uh, community and a lot of things have been catalyzed at, catalyzed that over that over the last decade. So check out nextmed.health and you've got about uh, 10 days to come sign up and join us in San Diego. It's at the Hotel Del Coronado, a classic sign up and join us in San Diego. It's at the Hotel Del Coronado, a classic 130 year old, um, amazing uh, beachside resort. That sounds great. Uh, and I'm a longtime fan of uh, exponential medicine and Singularity University. Uh, and I hear about a lot of the trends affecting healthcare and medicine coming uh, you know, out of there. And so uh, you know, th this conference sounds very exciting to me and my audience tends to also be very forward looking as well. So I think it'll be exciting to them. And as I mentioned before, there's a registration discount code of Wardell-750 um, if you register for the conference. Um, so um, 
much of our audience has probably heard of exponential medicine. Some haven't. Um, but uh, what does it mean to say that the future of medicine is exponential? Can you give us an overview? Uh, and this has been a theme now for for several years. And so, are we are we on track, uh, or are we is it faster than expected? Uh, or well, in health and medicine, often things don't happen as rapidly as we might expect. Um, we're often incremental, not exponential, and there's some good reasons: regulatory, but often misaligned incentives and reimbursement challenges and culture challenges. Um, so are we on track on the exponential? Well, if we go back 10 years, um, one of the, you know, buzzwords even back then was AI, right? It was IBM Watson in 2011 or so, and it beat Jeopardy champions. And there was a lot of buzz about, um, AI doctors coming along, um, AI doctors coming along very, very quickly. And that was a bit of a foiled attempt. Uh, I think I'd very, very quickly. And that was a bit of a foiled attempt, uh, I think. IBM spent more money on marketing than actually building the product. Um, but everyone sort of was hyping that. There's the Gartner hype cycle. We expected to have a lot of things in two years. Now, 10 years later, AI and healthcare has become the real deal. We have you know hundreds of FDA-cleared AI-based uh, platforms, mostly in diagnostics for radiology and pathology. But And now GPT, and today it's GPT-3, so it'll be four and five, is also exploding our brains in the art of possible. So some things are moving exponentially. They sometimes just have a bit of a lag and we sometimes have not just to remember sort of Moore's law, the power of computing getting exponentially better, but Amara's law, which means uh, in summary that we sometimes overestimate what might happen in two years and underestimate what happened in a decade. So it depends on how you're looking at the spectrum. I think there's a ton of disruption and change that can and should happen to health and biomedicine. And part of the theme at NextMed is what's now near and next, but also how to get to next uh, in, in smarter, more effective and equitable way next, uh, in, in smarter, more effective and equitable ways. That That's great. Uh, and so si since you have this wonderful view into what's sort of the near next and what's beyond that, can you give us a taste of it? What are, for example, three, three things we can, we, we can think about that are, uh, you know, technologies that are, that are ready, uh, or, or, or products that are going to, you know, uh, uh, that change, you know, potentially change medicine? Well, sometimes, again, there's a bit of a lag between the technology existing and it changing things. So I think seven years ago at Exponential Medicine 2016, 17, we had Stefan Bansell, the chairman and CEO of, of Moderna, talking about mRNA. And no one... Well, sometimes, again, there's a bit of a lag between the technology existing and it changing things. So I think seven years ago at Exponential Medicine 2016, 17, we had Stefan Bansell, the chairman and CEO of of Moderna talking about mRNA and no one really heard of mRNA as a really heard of mRNA as a therapeutic or as a modality for vaccines. And obviously I don't need to tell this audience what happened in the pandemic, but that was built on, you know, technology stacks that had been evolving. But now of course, mRNA is going to be useful for all sorts of things, not just uh, COVID and the flu, but hopefully Alzheimer's cancer and beyond. So uh, if I was to so, say, where, where are we this year with things that are exciting? that might be the next Moderna's or, or shift how things happen. Um, one of our keynotes is uh, Mike Snyder, a professor, chairman of genetics at Stanford, uh, who runs the Stanford Healthcare Innovation Lab. And about a month ago in Nature Biotechnology, they published actions and they did deep multiomics on his per peripheral blood, right? From proteome to, I don't know, all the different omics that you can get out now and looked at the changes over hourly events, plus his digital health and digitome. And they give a really interesting picture into his health and what changes physiologically, as well as they did this with volunteers drinking a certain shake. And you could see how different people responded to different meals, precision nutrition. So I think we're, we are entering this sort of um, Theranos for real, where you would give a drop of blood and get a ton of data out. The trick is now going from data to insights to action. You know, we have lots of new information from our wearables and other bulls and microbiome and other ohms data out. The trick is now going from data to insights to action. You know, we have lots of new information from our wearables and other bulls and microbiome and other ohms. The, the, the question is, so what? How do we leverage that for prevention, diagnostics, and therapy and integrate that into the incentive models, payment models, and the workflow of, of clinicians and patients? The, the, the question is, so what? How do we leverage that for prevention, diagnostics, and therapy and integrate that into the incentive models, payment models, and the workflow of, of clinicians and patients and humans? That's great. And, you know, the, I think what's so interesting about um, Stefan Bansell and Moderna 
was here, people had been talking about mRNA for vaccines for quite a while. Um, and then here was this crisis that actually uh, sped forward development that might have still taken quite a while otherwise. Um, and they developed a vaccine for COVID extremely quickly. And I, I think I've, I've heard them say that um, that based on their prior work, it took them about a week. Um, and But now uh, that platform um, has the potential to develop vaccines for uh, sort of uh, under the radar diseases that normally wouldn't justify a 10 year or 20 year expensive vaccine effort, but now could be done easily, or even cancer. Um, can you give us a, a little more of a preview of what, uh, why is and that having a vaccine for cancer doesn't, doesn't quite make sense based on most people's initial understanding of, of cancer, um, but yeah, what's initial understanding of, of cancer, um, but yeah, what what can we expect from mRNA in, in the future, do you think? Well, mRNA and other platforms are now, you know, it's really synthetic biology meeting uh, the metal meeting the road. <laughs> um, and one example would be, let's, let's, like, let's put our futures hat and be five, 10 years out. What can we expect from mRNA in, in the future, do you think? Well, mRNA and other platforms are now, you know, it's really synthetic biology meeting uh, the metal meeting the road. <laughs> um, and one example would be, let's, let's like, let's put our futures hat and be five, 10 years out. Um, you know, as already you described, they got, um, you know, as already you described, they got the, the, the email file of the sequence of, of uh, the first SARS-CoV uh, virus and were pretty quickly, including groups at the NIH and uh, others able to sort of synthesize a spike protein uh, mRNA and it turned out to be quite effective. Um, the challenge was then getting that into manufacturing into scale. So let's maybe jump forward 10 years. You might jump off an airplane and be diagnosed with some new uh, SARS-CoV-35. And uh, you might have that sequenced uh, in a you know smartphone-based sequencer and literally send that to the 3D printer uh, down the, the vaccine you need or the group in your neighborhood who might need that to not have a pandemic, but just keep something very lo localized. So I think that will hopefully come to fruition. And even um, Pfizer's working on now ways to potentially make vaccine production, you know, outside the U.S. and, and hopefully democratize access because there's still many vaccine deserts in parts of the world where there's a huge dearth of folks not getting those. So I think huge potential there. Um, on the cancer side, I'm an oncologist uh, by training. Uh, you know, almost everyone has a different cancer. You say lung cancer, there's, you know, thousands of, almost everyone has a different cancer. You say lung cancer, there's, you know, thousands of molecular subtypes. Um, from you know, almost every type has its own, um, you know, molecular differences. And if we can start to understand those, sequence the patient's tumor or heterogeneous tumor cells, uh, find that uh, target and basically synthesize that and make a personalized cancer vaccine in days or weeks at most, that will be part of the future of, of many forms of oncology. Or if you're at high risk, you're BRCA1 or 2, and you have a, a high risk of breast or ovarian or other cancers, you may take a proactive cancer vaccine or a vaccine for Alzheimer's or other elements that seem to have a um, you know, immune system uh, component. So lots to look out for there. And, you know, you've, you have been the curator who's put together this conference. Uh, and what do you think are the shocks that are disrupting medicine now? Uh, so there's, there's positive shocks, like the cost of certain things falling, uh, uh, and like uh, data storage, for example, um, or genetic tests. Uh, and there's also negative shocks like uh, the disease burden, in, for example, um, or genetic tests. Uh, and there's also negative shocks like uh, the disease burden in developed countries uh, keeps rising. Um, but what, what do you think are some of the shocks that are disrupting medicine that developed countries uh, keeps rising? Um, but what, what do you think are some of the shocks that are disrupting medicine that, that you're, you're seeing leaders talk about at your conference? Well, one of the, sh not really a sh shock, but we've all had our eyes open a bit more, particularly through the pandemic, about healthcare disparities and who had mortality, morbidity from COVID as a sense, often based on underlying, in the U.S. we're talking about here, but the rest of the world as well, based on underlying disparities and access to, you know, basic healthcare. Um, and uh, so it's a bit of a shock to the system because I think Deloitte had a report that it's the cost of our healthcare disparities is, you know, reaching multi-billion trillion level. So if we can start to address the, some of the root causes, sometimes that's simple stuff. 
you know, better dungeon and, uh, and uh, other elements in health education, not fancy CRISPR-based um, therapeutics. So that's a bit of a, I don't know if it's a shock to the system, but it's sort of in the zeitgeist now. A lot of people talk about health equity and access. I think um, we've been spurred a bit to hopefully, hopefully keep that momentum and actually take some of these new tools and technologies, whether it's a mobile phone or a cheap wearable, and leverage that to enable someone from rural Georgia to rural Rwanda have basic health access. Another shock to the system, obviously, last three months is platforms like ChatGPT and and um, and uh, and sort of next generation AI, which is going to enable uh, almost anybody with a smartphone and a chatbot to hopefully collect their actual health information. It could be from their wearable. It could be their genomics. Synthesize that. And when you ask a question or have a symptom, it's going to be able to answer you in a much more contextual way. And yes, it's not perfect yet. And it has issues with, even though it can pass the medical boards, um, often is not citing the right references or makes mistakes. But again, don't forget one or two more clicks of Moore's Law, where that might be in two, three, five, or 10 years. And the power of sort of the true augmented intelligence clinician in your pocket is going to sort of be here for, for almost everybody who has a, a smartphone. And almost everybody, the bottom billion on the planet included, have some form of, of mobile phone today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, in, interestingly, in America, we, we generally have very good health care. It's also physician-mediated health care, um, and there's a lot of specialists as well. Um, and sometimes uh, technologies find their, their home in less developed countries where they don't have uh, great options available to them, but they do have an app on a smartphone, for example. Uh, and so, uh, and they, they may not, you know, it may be a choice between no care versus, um, you know, the uh, automated care on their smartphone, uh, which in America, we, we, we would want that to be integrated into the healthcare system, but in those countries, it may just be a blessing to have that option available to them. Well, there is no um, one healthcare system in the United States. It's a gemisch of often malfunctioning and contrarian, misaligned incentive plans and systems. Um, and yes, many parts of the world don't have that wiring and the, the lobby from certain uh, medical groups that can get in the way of sometimes things leapfrogging. So a lot of technologies will leapfrog, go out of the U.S. and then or Europe and come back. Uh, as they've been proven out in other parts of the world. In in uh, China, um, especially rural China, very little medical care until recently. There's an app called Good Doctor that I think has 300 million Chinese using it, a very quick adoption that gives them some basic level, like it's not 100% of, of virtualized care, and then access to physicals, pharmacies, and others when, when, when necessary. So you can see examples like that. Or in rural Africa, I'm an advisor to a company called Ilara Health. They're kind of building the one medical for uh, for Africa, you know, integrating in the live core and a butterfly ultrasound and maybe a hyperfine device. You can do a lot now. Uh, what would require a Stanford can be done with a few uh, digital diagnostic tools that can fit in your clinician's pocket or a community health workers. So um, lots of shifts. And again, no one healthcare system uh, anywhere in the world has it uh, nailed down. So you, you mentioned artificial intelligence. That That's a great topic for us to do a slightly deeper dive on. Uh, so when I think of artificial intelligence in medicine and healthcare, I think there's there's enormous potential. And I try to think of where, where it's really going to find a home. And one obvious place is in radiology and pathology with machine learning applied to computer vision uh, and, and spotting um, cancerous cells or in a uh, in a pathological slide or or issues like that. One is there. Another uh, different part of healthcare would be spotting uh, gaps in care, uh, doing running analyses of of patients' EMR and billing records and spotting gaps in care. Um, and that has the interesting, um, uh, in, in the U.S. healthcare system, uh, it can prompt uh, uh, providers to provide more care, um, which they usually want to do. And it's also, uh, you know, uh, it's good for the patient as well. So, that, so there's a lot of potential in, in spotting gaps in care. Um, and then a third in, intriguing area is, is um, kind of a talk therapy. Uh, and here you might get into the chat GPT, um, hopefully uh, doing a good job of that there's a lack of providers in, in talk therapy. And so that there's a potential to have a kind of a, uh, a, um, an AI person uh, chatting with people uh, to address mental health concerns. So those are three areas. I'd love to get your critique. Do you think those are valid areas? And are you seeing other areas that, I, that I'm missing where 
AI uh, you know, could be very valuable in healthcare. Well, those are all perfect examples of where AI is already playing a role or, or will be, and certainly in diagnostics. And you know, now even with digital pathology, you can take a H&E stain, a basic picture of a breast cancer or biopsy and tell whether it's breast cancer, is it ER positive, PR negative, what molecular subtypes it have, what risk factors, and what maybe even predict what chemotherapy route might be best for that patient, just from an image with the right analysis, obviously built on a huge data set of other images and, and patient histories. Um, I think, uh, um, you know, it's still a little bit hyped, but I think if we look at where generative AI can go, um, let, me dial, let me dial back. One element, as you mentioned, you can be looking at lots of finding gaps in care. Right now, we don't practice healthcare, we practice sick care, and that's really much based on very intermittent data collected in the four walls of the clinic or the hospital, the ICU, and very reactive in nature. Um, our potential now in our connected internet of, internet of medical things age is our wearables and other bulls, our voice is a biomarker, our camera is a biomarker. You could do vitals off that camera right now, um, can be continuous. And you don't just find gaps in care, you're going to find data that, that says, Stephen or Daniel, there's something going on with your physiology right now. Maybe you need to get a checkup, that sort of human check, check engine light for the body equivalent. Um, I already have apps to do that. My aura ring told me I had a terrible night's sleep last night, so maybe I should take it easy today. Um, but I think when we have all these digital exhaust collected from millions of individuals in context, we'll be able to find those gaps of care, you know, just from our, our digitome, our digital exhaust, and, and, and hope, hopefully enable folks to be much more proactive or diagnose diseases at stage zero or manage a disease in a much more precision, personalized feedback loop um, driven way. And so where I think sort of another gap is that AI can address is that our communications is still very much one size fits all. You know, you'll get some scribble note from your doc or a handout or a flyer, exercise more, eat less, or some insert from your drugs that you never look at. But now you can say, I want to have that drug insert or those instructions for a 65-year-old Hispanic male with an eighth-grade level education, tell him how to help, help manage his hypertension in Spanish, and he'll write that explanation or give him the right images or make that information for a, a, a kid and, and or show that um, that co health coach and buddy is integrated in an adaptive way with your AR or VR environment or the music you might hear or the diet that's prescribed to you. So it can be a bit dystopian, but I think given that we have lots of data and knowledge today, it's not often translated and acted on, you know, non-adherence. We can use some of these tools to um, make healthcare more continuous for individuals and match them based on their age, culture, language, personality types, um, locations, and, and a lot more. So personalization that was theoretically possible, but that was too much work and we didn't necessarily have the data to do it right. Uh, this level of personalization, which could have a big improvement in outcomes, uh, is, now, is now becoming more possible. Is, is this personalized, you know, is this the next level of personalized medicine or is this, or is, is it a different category? Um, well, you think about personalized medicine or precision medicine, usually people think about the right drug, the right dose, the right patient at the right time. Yes, that's mm -hmm. true. But we are far from that today. I mean, if you're my patient in a primary care clinic and I, I train in general medicine, pediatrics and hematology, oncology, you know, and you had a high cholesterol, I'd go uh, uh, 40 milligrams of Lipitor for you and see you later. I wouldn't look at your pharmacogenetics. I wouldn't look at your renal function. I might not know anything else about uh, the basics, but that's the standard of care. I should have your pharmacogenetics in front of me. I might have an AI coach that looked at, looked at other patients like Steven and suggest you might need simvastatin at 10 milligrams because the atorvastatin is going to give you a muscle myopathy. Um, I might want to prescribe you a certain sort of app or wearable that might be op op opportune for you to help you manage high cholesterol and your cardiovascular risk in a way that you really engage with. Um, and there's already a ton of solutions out there uh, in digital health. You know, uh, a theme on digital health investor talk. Uh, for those who are interested, uh, I always like to look at healthcare challenges as a pain point. What do you want to solve for? And one pain point is I'm pretty good at keeping up with the latest in apps and wearables and other rules, but that's gotten exponential. Um, so, and many clinicians have no clue what's out there. So I've uh, built a little website called digital.health, which is a, a bit of a database and formulary and resource where you can now search through 2,500 solutions or companies. You put in diabetes or high cholesterol or AFib and you'll find solutions, whether they're diagnostics, therapeutics, apps, wearables, otherables that are available today. So I think there's also not just precision medicine, but precision digital health, getting the right platform and solution and app and then user interface that will be useful for the human or patient, but also will integrate with the workflow of the clinician because no doctor or nurse or pharmacist wants more data they want it to be integrated in a smart way that's aligned with their incentives and their day-to-day -day 
activities. That's great. So, so moving on from artificial intelligence, uh, let me bring up next sensors. So I remember, you know, back maybe 10 years ago, Cisco produced a report saying that we were going to have, you know, uh, 40 billion smart sensors uh, in America, all sending their data, uh, you know, back to centralized servers. Um, and uh, the applications for that in medicine are very significant. And I've seen, you know, I've seen products like, um, uh, a pill capsule having a chip uh, and you swallow it and, and your and your body sends a signal uh, to a, a central repository. Um, you know, we more and more people have aura rings and Fitbits, which are sensors on your body. Um, how is that is that going? Are we progressing toward that 40 billion? Is this is this important to healthcare and medicine today uh, already uh, or is does it have more promise for the future? It's just starting to be. I think it's under-realized today. I mean, it's great that I have an Oura Ring and an Apple Watch, but uh, now over the last couple of years, I could go to HealthKit and send that to my doctor at Stanford uh, or my Fitbit data or my scale data. But what do they do with that information um, is a challenge. And it's often enough to get it from one little thing. I can now have my smart scale and a connected blood pressure cuff if I had hypertension or soon my Apple Watch will do blood pressure and probably blood sugar in the next couple of years. So you've got multiple streams of data and your sleep data and your voice as a biomarker and, 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 and. And so I think the future is gonna be this internet of medical things synthesized in a way that's gonna give us that sort of um, predictalytics. It'll sort of show when you're on path, it's gonna know your baseline. Steven's baseline is different than Daniel's. Um, and if my resting heart rate is normally 52 when I sleep and it's gone up to 62, maybe something's going on. And maybe my clinician or my AI chatbot doctor is going to look at that and say, hey, Daniel, we've noticed this change. Uh, have you been drinking a lot before bedtime, which raises your heart rate? Uh, is there something else that we need to bring you in and do a, uh, an EKG? Maybe we'll send you an Alive Core and do a six liter, a 12 lead EKG at home, right? And then do a screening with AI enhanced algorithms on top of that. So I think there's a lot of dots to connect. And I always say that we're still in this quantified self stage. You know, you and I are data geeks and many of the listeners have our data, is on our health kit. Maybe we're starting to share it a bit, but where it's going to move is to quantified health. It's going to be potentially when you opt in continuously flowing and it will, it will, will make meaning out of it. And that's going to bring us to this era of you know, more self-care rather than just health care. And where patients and humans are much more engaged in their health information at the level they want to be, or they offsource it to their chat GPT-5 you know, coach that's going to be looking and sifting through that all the time and helping them meet their healthcare goals. And I I have seen uh, among peers, I've seen, you know, a growing amount of people who are wearing uh, activity trackers and, and the equivalent, and that's often for step count and sleep. And step count helps to prompt them to get the steps in, and sleep helps them to understand maybe why sleep didn't go so well last night and what they could do, um, you know, to, to, to boost sleep in the future. But I've also seen a real uptick just in the last few years of home blood pressure cuffs where the data is reported back to a, a primary care physician um, and blood glucose monitors um, for, uh, for more advanced, more sophisticated, connected blood glucose monitors for people who have diabetes as well. So this has been, um, has been increasing. And in, in some cases we're seeing, of course, the uh, CMS has issued codes where physicians will get reimbursed for taking into account re remote data that's collected from patients such as blood glucose levels or um, high, or blood pressure readings. Uh, and so that, I think that that's a success story. I think those, those codes initially came out in 2019. And that, that's a success story, I think, in terms of integra finally integrating this data um, using relatively cheap sensors that are still clinical grade at home with patients and tying that into the the, health, the, you know, the healthcare system. Uh, are you seeing that too? Is that is that is that an indicator of the future? Well, that, that whole change with CPT codes, uh, you know, follow the money, right? Uh, go where the incentives are. And that is a massive shift to enable now this new era or newish era of hospital to home, or I call it hospital, uh, hospital to home hospital, uh, where you can admit a patient to home. Mayo Clinic's doing a lot of this now with pretty sick patients, um, not just a simple pneumonia and an IV antibiotic. Um, and yes, because clinicians and hospital systems can now be incentivized to do that remote patient monitoring and keep people out of their four walls. Um, it's, it's, I think it's still at the early edge of what's possible. If we go forward another five, 10 years, we'll, um, have a really different picture of being able to track 
people in, in new ways and integrate that into the care models and the workflows and the meaning from that. So, you know, one example, there's a Stanford spin out called, um, um, they basically had a, a, a device for measuring stress and respiratory rate. It would, it would go on your belt. And when the CPT codes uh, changed, uh, they pivoted and they went from a consumer company to a, I call them underwearables. You get a pack of 10 of these little sensors and uh, they use it for tracking COPD and potentially COVID uh, as an example. But you, you're not gonna need fancy devices. Everyone's soon FDA cleared wearable of some form will do some version of blood pressure, um, maybe blood sugar, um, maybe even things like hemoglobin A1C. Uh, one of the fun things we're gonna do at, uh, at NextMed Health is we have a, a pretty well-known singer coming, Aloe Black, amazing musician. And we thought we'd look at people's physiology when they respond to music. And it's like, how do we crowdsource several hundred people's physiology in real time? And um, I met a while back this company called Bina.ai out of Israel. They can use the camera now you can all download the Bina.ai app and, you know, it'll do your heart rate, heart rate variability, stress level, a bunch of other metrics, uh, BMI, predicts lots of, lots of things based on your face and a lot of um, physics that I can't explain. Um, and uh, now we could be picking up the physiology of everybody in the room, just with the camera on them and, and look at that data in real time. Imagine your laptop or your iPhone is continually looking at your spot checks uh, as well. And that becomes part of your remote patient monitoring. And again, hopefully it's, enables us to be more proactive rather than reactive. So uh, another um, major trend we've been watching for a while is um, using social in healthcare. So there's a saying that, you know, if you're with happy friends, you'll be happy. Um, if your friends gain weight, you may gain weight. If your friends quit smoking, you may quit smoking. Um, if you are trying to stick to a plan, like a diet plan, um, having your friends or maybe your parents, uh, you know, brought in to give you encouragement, uh, uh, you know, can be helpful with that. Are we seeing that play out? Is that is that a high potential trend? Uh, is that is it working today, or is it, uh, or or are there you know innovations still on the horizon in the idea of social networks, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, impacting and disrupting healthcare? Like anything else. Uh, um social like social networks can be good for your health or bad for your health and there's med twitter and many of us have met in virtual sessions on things like clubhouse which is a great lifeline for many folks during the pandemic and yes health is social and your friends friend friends are obese or unhappy or using drugs or having healthy or unhealthy lifestyles that impacts often uh the the, the human at the center of that social um circle and there's also other very clear data that you know social isolation is more dangerous than smoking one of the side of impacts of the pandemic and contributing to mental health issues. Um, so I think there are ways now to hopefully leverage technologies to connect the social strata in, in new ways, whether it's FaceTiming with your mom or your college buddies uh, or friends or, uh, you know, digital empathy, your clinician sending you text messages, or even if they're not one-on-one, -on -one, that makes you feel engaged with your clinical team. Um, so I think it's a super critical piece. Uh, and. So we need to think about not just the social determinants of health, but the, the digital determinants of health. Do people have access to, to a smartphone service plan or Wi-Fi? You know, in many cases, that's part of the social construct. Um, and then there's even the idea of video gaming uh, is a social connection piece. And now video games for mental health being developed. A company, I have a seed stage venture fund called Continuum Health Ventures. We just invested in Deep Well Therapeutics, founded by one of the, you know, original gangsters of... Uh, OGs of, of video gaming and one of the leaders in medical device and regulatory, building video games at scale that can both measure and impact um, mental health. So that's another example of sort of social meets technology that will be interesting and part of, I think, our next era, you know, blended with AR, VR, XR, and being able to be in multiple environments uh, with your avatar that will give you some social um, elements, whether you're meeting with your doctor or your nutritionist or your friends. That's great. And, and I think some I've seen that are working today is I think that in certain sort of high commitment fields, like I'm thinking of, of Strava, you, you've probably heard of Strava, the, the, the fitness app. Um, I've got one somewhere, not on this wrist today. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it, in that community, the people I know who use Strava, uh, it's very important to them that their friends who, who often are also cyclists who use Strava, for example, um, uh, know what they did that weekend and, and uh, that they uh, that and they know that their friend 
you know, went 45 miles, so they have to go more than 45 miles, uh, for example. Um, and then I used to see a lot of this kind of involvement with, with Fitbit as well, uh, of people, you know, noting other people's you know, step count and trying to beat it, be in competitions and step count. And then uh, I think another another intriguing area is um, uh, it, with Meta Facebook, there's exercise apps in VR like Saber, uh, for example. Um, is it is it Saber Beat, I think, where Saber, they do uh, yeah. a dance? I actually, yeah. early in the pandemic, my Oculus is somewhere here. Um, early in the pandemic, all the gyms were closed. I was one of the early users of a platform on Oculus called Supernatural, which is kind of Beat Saber, but made for exercise with coaches and <laughs> leaderboards. And yeah, I would compete with my friends. I did 100 days straight of, of that until I tweaked my knee. And I could see my Apple Watch on the health kit. Um, my resting heart rate went down by like eight or nine points after three months of doing that straight, which is some measure of cardiovascular fitness. Uh, and that was definitely kind of social. Um, and yes, I think even Fitbit did those early competitions. It engaged some people, some not. I think Facebook, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Google bought Fitbit. And I think they're turning off some of those features, which have upset a lot of people lately. But yes, a lot of people can use that gamification element um, whether it's getting social badges or points or being the king of the hill or fastest on the bike on that stretch of road that day uh, to keep them engaged, uh, you know, particularly for the folks more normally on the, the, the healthy side, how do we add gamification for diabetics, right? Or for folks with mental health to stay on top of their meds. There's other layers where we need to go, particularly from the sort of consumer side to the, the sick care side. That's great. And for our audience, um, by the way, uh, you're welcome to, if you're logged in uh, to call in, you're welcome to ask a question in the chat uh, or raise your hand to be a caller. Um, and we'll be taking questions from the audience as well. Uh, uh, so, uh, and we have, we have one question, which was, can you say again, the name of the facial vitals company? One of our audience members. Asked. I'll put it in the chat. It's, uh, there's a couple now. This one's called Bina.ai. And um, I don't know if it's, you know, you feel, I think log in, I think it's free. There's a few others now where it'll basically go on your camera as an app or just on the web and literally pick up your vital signs. Um, I saw another one recently that purports to diagnose COVID as you look up right and left, look at your eyes. It has some potential validation around uh, diagnosing COVID. Um, and when you combine these factors, right? Um, the groups at Stanford and others have shown that your Apple Watch could predict who likely had COVID two days before they were symptomatic. And you might combine that with your voice as a biomarker, cophalytics, is that cough sound COVID, croup, or a common cold? Um, and then on the social side, you know, you might walk into a room and know who who was off on their voice analytics and their vital signs. You might want to not shake their hands that day you know, or, or stay away from that party. Um, so I think there's, you know, going to be an interesting blend. Uh, I imagine somewhere in the future we'll I'll be wearing our Strava score and uh, that'll be a, a kind of a new social cred, you know, that you did your workouts that week and you've been on a good fasting diet um, and, and some, some cords that may enable a shift even to sort of the super healthy or those who have better genetics to some degree than others to self ensuring, right? What happens then to the, to the metric when the, the nine and tens on the genetic spectrum and those who are working out all the time don't have to buy into the same insurance pools that, you know, the average American is, is part of. So um, let, let me bring up, since we're chatting about these, you know, what I think is one of the most remarkable areas um, of, uh, of product development and is, is very, I think will be very fruitful in the future is when you have a mass consumer device that has mass consumer sensors and actuators on the device, and this is used for a health purpose. So basically your phone has sensors and then actuators to help you with an issue. So uh, I'll just mention three really quickly, all very ingenious. One was is um, Achille. People know uh, Achille, which is the, um, the, the the software game for ADHD for kids. Um, the program, it is the monitoring. It is the diagnosis. It is the um, therapy. And it is the um, adherence measurer, and it is the adherence uh, promoter as well. It, it can the device can alarm and tell a kid to play it for 45 minutes or something. So just uh, absolutely fascinating. And then there's also another is um, uh, there's I, I think this is Sunday. So Sunday 
will interpret data on your phone, such as how fast you respond to your top 10 email people or your top 10 um, uh, texting uh, people or how your voice sounds when you talk to people on your side of the conversation. Um, and uh, it will use that to determine what, how you're feeling and whether you are feeling low. Uh, and then it will recommend peppy music to you, so to, to lift up your, your spirits. Um, and then uh, the last is Nightwear, um, which is an Apple uh, Watch device um, that uh, is for people with extreme nightmare disorder, where uh, they rapidly fall into deep sleep and have nightmares and then wake up and they can never get a good night's sleep because they're always falling into deep sleep and having nightmares. And this can sense when you fall into deep sleep on your wrist uh, and then buzz you to, to bring you into light sleep when you don't have nightmares and it helped you at least have long periods of light sleep and keep you out of deep sleep and nightmares. Um, and there you have the sensor is your, your movement um, with the Apple Watch and the actuator is the buzzing of the Apple Watch on your wrist. Uh, so I think this is a, a very interesting area um, for possible future product development. And we're going to have more devices. They're going to have more sensors and more actuators on them in the future. Um, and there's this, this potential to, um, to put this together on a, on a commercial device. I think that, that, that's um, fascinating. So yeah, I, mean, I call them, um, you know, this, the, all the wearables, but often they, they just collect data. They're not giving you feedback. Um, I, the idea of trainable. So I was an early advisor for an Israeli company called Upright. And it's for posture, right? It's a little device you put in your back. And when you're hunched over for about 20 seconds, it'll buzz your back and remind you, sit up straight. And about a week of wearing that, you, people will dramatically improve their posture. Um, or there's one called... Uh, something that will shock you if you're biting your nails. So, you know, the idea that thing, you can measure things and maybe give some input that will often do the hardest thing in healthcare, which is change behavior, whether it's posture or biting your nails or diet. Um, and ideally these things will start to, to, to match the individual because not all nightmares are, are the same or uh, um, the, the, the algorithms and the, the, the feedback loops might be a bit different. Mm -hmm. So another um, technological shock uh, is is blockchain now blockchain's gotten a large amount of hype um, but i i haven't seen a lot of a lot of interesting software come out of blockchain so one intriguing one was medical credentials so instead of credentials living at duke university medical school or living at some other place uh, somehow you would one time put all your credentials on the blockchain and then anyone who wanted to hire someone with medical credentials doesn't have to go to six different institutions to collect them. They can go to the blockchain and find that they that those credentials are there. That, that, that That's a good one. It's a, it's a surprisingly challenging problem to deal with. And the blockchain solution is, is pretty good for that. But I, I haven't seen a lot of blockchain solutions. And I actually have a, a contrary thesis, which is that... Um, which is that blockchain is actually worse than Web 2.0. It's worse than cloud for everything except um, uh, decentralization. And so, if you if you must be if you need decentralization, then you can go with blockchain. But for other things, um, uh, Web Web 2 is often better. So, for example, with EMR records, there's been talk for years of putting EMR records on blockchain, but centralized cloud systems are just so good in so many ways and the way they're paid for is hospitals want to pay for their emr system so that they control it um, in general and then there's no one else who wants to pay for a second emr system after that uh, so do you have any thoughts as to is blockchain a, a disappointment um, or are we going to are we going to see um, changes in medicine come out of blockchain hmm. This is a bit beyond my pay grade, but because uh, I've learned and forgotten how blockchain works so many times, <laughs> it's like, remind me. Um, but clearly, I mean, uh, medical records is the one you mentioned that may not be the best use case. Um, certainly credentialing, I think you, you argued, is a huge issue in healthcare. I mean, we still have huge issues now with telemedicine, which has exploded during the pandemic, come back a bit down to reality. Um, is often hindered because, you know, if I'm here in California and I want to take care of a patient in North Dakota, I'm not licensed in North Dakota. I can't do that. North Dakota has a shortage of, <laughs> of clinicians. Um, so there's some clever use cases there. Uh, also clinical trials, I think are trying to leverage them in smart ways. So there's just whole, this whole idea, not to be focused on any one technology, but what's the problem you want to solve for, and then use some of these emerging technologies often at their convergence point to, to solve 
for them as opposed to saying this has to be sold by blockchain or by web three or by quantum computing, or whatever your favorite uh, flavor of the month is. I think there's a huge opportunity to look at a problem now in health and medicine, of which there's still many um, and go, how do we connect the dots? And blockchain can be part of that for, for, for many of them. Uh, and that's an exercise I encourage folks to think about. You know, when we think about next med health, it's like, okay, there's a lot of things that are here now, a lot of things that are near and a lot of things that are going to be evolving when you're planning to build your, solution for your new hospital clinic, build an app, build some solution to any pain point, whether it's grandma remembering to take her meds or solving for personalized cancer. Don't just think about the technology stack of today or be stuck in blockchain version 2023. What's going to be here in two more clicks of Moore's law, you know, and, and that's, that's where you need to be skating to in terms of um, the art of the art of the possible. So any, any other technologies that you'd add to the ones we, that we mentioned, uh, AI, sensors, uh, social technologies, blockchain? Well, it combines some of them. It's not exactly, it's old technology. Uh, psychedelics is certainly now in the zeitgeist. Um, at NextMed Health, we'll have Paul Stamets doing a keynote and updating uh, what's happening with, let's say, the evidence base for psilocybin to help treat everything from PTSD to depression to addiction to microdosing to make people uh, um, slightly more creative. Um, I'm not a, a, a practitioner myself, but I think that's a whole interesting area, given that there's huge uh, challenges in mental health and uh, whether it's ketamine, which looks like it's being abused in some settings in telemedicine, uh, but does have applications for, you know, addressing major depression and others, these sorts of new old tools meet new applications and are being going through the right FDA pathways is a whole sort of new tech stack. That's uh, I think going to be a potential game changer, uh, particularly for a lot of challenging mental health disorders. Another one quite different is, you know, gene therapy. Another one of those things has been promised for a long time that now is sort of starting to the exponential, partly through CRISPR and mRNA and beyond. And now we're seeing the ability to show that we can cure diseases like sickle cell and thalassemia, right? you know, classic single gene diseases, we're going to start to go into more complex ones or do in vivo genetic engineering. So I'm a bone marrow transplanter. Normally to cure sickle cell, you do a transplant from a matched donor. Now you can take the bone marrow stem cells out, manipulate them, knock out the wrong hemoglobin gene, put the new one in, do a sort of auto transplant. Um, that's starting to happen in vivo in the body of the patient. Uh, I was a resident at Mass General with uh, Seth Catherine of a company called Verve Therapeutics, where they're now in primates or maybe humans now doing in vivo gene therapy to the liver for patients who have super high cholesterol from familial hypercholesteremia. So we're going to start to see this sort of, uh, you know, minority report era of healthcare. You're going to know you're likely to get this bad disease based on your genetics or other data, and then you can start to go after it before you're sick, in some cases through in vivo genetic manipulation. And that. I think that's going to be part of this future medicine. It might be gene therapy. It might be a new vaccine against your particular cancer type. Or um, if you have APO4E and you're high risk for Alzheimer's, there might be a, a vaccine or other precision approach uh, involved there. That's great. And I'll, I'll call for our audience. We have, we have a few more minutes um, to, you can post a question in the room chat uh, or raise your hand to be a caller. Um, and so when I think of these, these technologies, these shocks, uh, technological shocks to the system, uh, they, you know, they, I, I can think of trends that they uh, empower. Uh, and so one of those, you know, is, is, um, uh, is patient empowerment. So are we seeing technology empowering patients uh, to take care of themselves? Or is that, that, that runs into all sorts of problems, such as a lot of patients don't want to address their condition or spend extra effort to take care of themselves. But are we seeing these empower patients, do you think? Yeah, there's an old phrase, the new, the new drug is the empowered, engaged patient, right? There's not just going to the old model of Dr. Welby, wait to get sick, go talk to the doctor, the doctor knows it all, and you say, yes, sir, ma'am, I will do this. You know, we're now in an age where, particularly for the digital generation, they're used to sifting through their personal social sharing information and hopefully being more empowered and want the uberization of healthcare so that they can order that home lab test and then not just Google it, but soon chat GPT it and understand what that means in context. Uh, I think we're in the era now of the engaged, empowered consumer, uh, whether that's using a CGM to, to track your blood sugar, whether you're diabetic or not, or using a mental health app or a telemedicine platform. Or now we've all experienced home diagnostics thanks to COVID we're now thinking differently about where does healthcare happen, um, whether it's home diagnostics or having your first virtual visit, which will soon uh, not just be talking to a, a doctor on the screen, it'll be an avatar that matches your 
age, culture, personality, et cetera, and will align with your incentives. So I think it's really entering the era of self-care where um, folks are going to have their genome done before they're born. They'll know what their risk factors are. They may be much more proactive from early childhood through all of their life to, to, to be, a, you know, if not the CEO of their health, the, the COO and much more uh, engaged in their care pathways. That's not going to be for all, but I think there's an opportunity for that to happen. Um, and it's already happening. That's great. So we have a, a question from, uh, from an audience member from uh, Brent, uh, who's asking, do you see any innovation on the horizon for interoperability? Um, so I, I come out of the EMR sector. So let me mention that I think we're still disappointed about interoperability for EMRs. So first of all, if you're an innovator, um, the the hurdle to get over to be, you have to be interoperable with leading EMRs like Cerner, Epic, Athena Health. Athena has been the best of all of these on interoperability. All of them say they will be interoperable, but at a certain level, they're actually competing for budget with these innovators and there's part of them that doesn't want to be interoperable. And so that's that's still a problem uh, and uh, uh, that is hurting innovation. Uh, and then um, there's also just other uh, issues like sort of a, an, an always never um, privacy issue, which is that um, you always have to um, make the data, you, you want to be able to make the data available to a clinician when needed, but you can never have the data go into unauthorized hands. And that is just a, also a very hard bar in the decentralized system that we have to meet. So I, I don't know if that's what, uh, so Brent, thanks for the question. I don't know if that's what you meant by interoperability if you were talking about the EMR sector, but Daniel, I'd love to hear your thoughts on interoperability in EMRs and maybe other areas. It's been an epic fail so far. I mean, this whole industry is around interoperability. Um, and I think we need to rethink even some of our privacy laws. I mean, HIPAA, I guess, is a well-meaning regulatory uh, law from the pre-digital age. And now we're in the multi-connected 5G world. And a lot of patients die with their privacy intact when they might have rather been alive if we could have you know, shared more information and built that kind of Google Maps or ways of healthcare where every healthcare system and every patient has the opportunity to be a data donor, not just a, a, an organ or blood donor. And, and, and we can have not just interoperability, but shared knowledge just in time. I mean, most of what we do today is still based on Framingham uh, guidelines based on a small population of Caucasian uh, folks in Western Massachusetts. Uh, that's how we you know, figure out how we manage heart disease. What if that was real time information based on real people in the cohort that you're seeing? Um, I, for example, signed up for uh, to be a data donor for the All of Us trial from the NIH. This is not exactly interoperability, but it's showing now that when you have millions of volunteers sharing their data, including your genomics, I actually got some of that information back. I just logged in and they're going to send me information about my pharmacogenomics and disease risk. What if that ported into my EMR and was interoperable no matter where I went? And I own that, my, my omic sharing, and I have a little key and I say, okay, Stephen, you can look at my genetic information, whether it's 23andMe or, or multi-omics or that digital twin era that's coming together um, to put information together. So I think interoperability is key uh, and it, it's going to only get enable innovators and we need to be smarter about letting data flow um, if we're going to, um, and do that in safe, protected ways, but not be over GDPRing everything to the point where everything freezes and, and uh, privacy is intact in some certain way, but we're not, we're not up-leveling the entire uh, healthcare continuum. That, uh, that, that's great. Um, and uh, so let me shift to regulatory changes. So I'll, I'll mention a few that I have my eye on. So, um, I think state medical boards were holding back um, telehealth in a lot of ways. They were um, uh, reducing its applicability. They were keeping out-of-state doctors from practicing in-state. Uh, and the pandemic really uh, shattered this at the level of the federal government and the state governments. Uh, and now we're, we're seeing that um, emergency, uh, that the state of emergency situation is ending. And so there's a, there's a and, but telehealth has served a very this has been a very valuable technology that's made care uh, accessible for many, um, and so now there's going to be some battles uh, at the at the federal level and the state levels to see whether we continue to keep telehealth as accessible and whether you get equivalent reimbursement 
And I think that's going to go relatively well, although we may see some states uh, you know, go backwards on that issue. That's one uh, change, regulatory change for the better. Another is the 10 plus year shift to fee for value. And I think you know, it, this has been very slow and convoluted, um, but we're still shifting toward fee for value. And I think fee for value is a huge win for innovative technologies because with fee for service, you're, you're reimbursing skilled labor, but you're not reimbursing technology that could substitute, that could automate or substitute for skilled labor. And a shift to fee for value will incent uh, the providers to be better buyers of technology. They'll buy more, they'll buy technology that really provides value more readily. So I like that. Um, and then, so th th those are two uh, regulations that I um, that uh, have changed, are changing. A third that hasn't changed, but I think I should change, is, um, is that in the world of prescription digital therapeutics, they are, di they, they have the potential it's a new modality, the way that small molecules are a modality, large molecules are a modality, gene editing is a modality. Um, and I, I believe prescription digital therapeutics, which are software, is a modality uh, of a therapeutic. Um, but they're at a disadvantage because the law gives a special uh, um, priority to new molecules for, um, you know, for an unmet medical need. Uh, and so that means that prescription digital therapeutics don't benefit from that treatment. And I'd like to see that uh, include uh, software-based prescription digital therapeutics as well. I think that would advance that field. Um, are there any regulations that you're watching? You know, are there any bet noir regulations you know, that you hate uh, or, or positive changes you've seen or, uh, or issues that, that for, re for regulation that you know, could change in the near future? Um, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, of some of our regulatory environments and, 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 you know, we need to have smart regulations, they, but they need to evolve with the times and the technologies. And, you know, so I think, um, the folks at the FDA did a arguably pretty good job with, um, the digital era of software meets a medical device, but cool Patel and, um, Bob Califf was there originally now back, you know, how do you connect the dots between drug device software? And that's helped move some of these things like AI meets radiology, forward and some of these digital therapeutics. Um, but yes, we need to be more mindful about how do you reimburse some of these? So you incentivize the innovators who, who build them and ship them, um, but also uh, um, show that they're creating real value. There's a lot of, you know, there's like 300,000 health apps out there. Some of them are FDA cleared, but many of them have very little evidence base. Some of them might be, you know, for tracking your diet and your exercise, that's fine. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a challenge to regulate and, and um, show value. But I think Big picture, I think we need to be thinking more about what are we trying to achieve here? How do we align the incentives, i.e. the payments and often value-based payments? How do you align the workflow of the clinician who's often overwhelmed and is dealing with um, siloed data and insurance companies that are uh, trying to prevent care in some cases? And how do we uh, engage the individual to take more responsibility for their for their health proactively so that we're not spending 80% of our healthcare dollar on the 20% of the population that has often very preventable sometimes socially enabled uh, diseases. Um, so uh, that means our regulators, there's very few, I think there's like, how many MDs are there in the Senate? Maybe one, one PhD in the whole Congress, I believe. Uh, how do you get the right knowledge to the regulators who set these very complex things into action that uh, often take decades to, to play out? That's great. Well, with that, we'll, we'll wind up. Uh, do you have any, uh, you know, concluding thoughts or sort of message from the conference for our audience? So um, come join us at NextMed Health. It's at nextmed.health, March 13th to 16th in San Diego at the Hotel Dell. Uh, we'll likely be live streaming it for free like we've done the last 10 years uh, at nextmed.health slash live. So it'll be a place to sign up for that. So join us virtually or on the Twitterverse. Um, and then we're, the idea is not just to be a once a year uh, gathering, but a virtual platform will have virtual elements or evening events or next med meets AI and, and sort of thematics that, again, helps cross connect. I think the challenge in healthcare and innovation in medicine is that there are all these silos and how do we bring the folks and ideas and communities together to look at problems, look at the technologies, look at incentives, look at lessons from around the world and speed up um, our health age so that we're not, you know, uh, stuck with telehealth that can't work because of a regulator or uh, a new drug that is delayed by five years because of kludgy um, 
uh, inability to use uh, digital diagnostics and, and clinical trials. So uh, that's sort of uh, where I hope things will go. And then I would encourage folks to check out digital.health to find new digital health solutions or existing ones and add solutions to that database. We're trying to build a repository for for everybody in the healthcare space to kind of find the, the digital-ish solutions and, and, and enable them to match the, the pain point and challenge you're trying to solve for. So, uh, and the last point I'll make is, uh, you know, uh, don't wait for the future to happen. I, I'm more of a nowist than a futurist. And if you have your own clinical problem or your mother or your friend or colleague or neighbor does, go out there and find a solution that might already exist. It may not be perfect. It may not be FDA cleared yet, but See if you can integrate that with your clinician. Are they going to want to look at your connected blood pressure cuff data or your CGM information and maybe help you optimize your metabolomics? You know, don't wait for everything to be paid for and handed to you on a silver uh, Uber type platform. That That's great. And, you know, as an example of that, I wanted to do intermittent fasting. Uh, and then I heard about an app, Zero, for intermittent fasting. So that, that's been very helpful to me. Uh, so you're right. There's There's a lot you can do right now. Um, great. Well, you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with host Stephen Wardell. Our thanks to our guest, Dr. Daniel Kraft, the chairman of NextMed Health. Um, you will find a list of upcoming investor talk shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, where my handle is at Stephen Wardell and Daniel Kraft uh, at Daniel underscore Kraft. To get notice of upcoming investor talks, sign up for our MailChimp list. See you next time with Who Wins the Digital Pharmacy with Harry Travis, the former senior VP of CDS Caremark on Wednesday, March 8th at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Um, thanks very much. And thank you, Daniel. Thank you.